Greetings, everybody. Jeanette, Mal, Greetings. welcome. Hi. <laughs> hello, hello, everyone. <laughs> how, how, is, how are you both? Good, good. Well, I'm very pleased to say that our guest, Tim Houlihan, has uh, in, the, in the green room. Tim, I can see you there. Nice to see you. We'll bring you on in just one second. <laughs> Before we do that, let me give you a quick introduction to Tim and his background. Okay, voiceover man, take it away. Tim Houlihan is the co-founder of the award-winning podcast Behavioral Grooves and the founder of the consultancy Behavior Alchemy. Tim's work with academic researchers at universities in the United States, Europe, Singapore and India and has also been applying behavioral science in product development, product marketing and sales for nearly 20 years. His podcast with co-host Kurt Nelson has published more than 200 episodes and has listeners in more than 120 countries. Wow. Without further ado, welcome to the show, Tim Houlihan. Tim Houlihan, welcome to the show. <laughs> no, there should be no bowing here. No. It's good bowing to see all of you. Bowing is not allowed. Yeah, no, bowing it. is not. Just in time, just in time. <laughs> say, we're, only, we're, only bowing, we're only bowing because you've turned up. <laughs> it's always a bit of a surprise, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you, you cut it very, very finely. You must have a Swiss watch of some sort going on there. <laughs> well, Tim, we were going to hope you would come on a bit earlier because I wanted to introduce you to Jeanette and Mal as well. But hey, we'll just get to know each other as we go along, anyway, as we, as we do. Um, so let me let me let me position the show. It was called Better Decision Making with Behavioral Science, and we're really excited to talk about this, simply because you've done a lot of work in this area and you've got a lot of things you want to share with us. So let me start with my opening salvo question, and then we'll open it up to Jeanette to Mal and just have a freestyle sort of chat, really. So, Tim, better decision-making with behavioral science. Tell us a little bit about it. Is it even possible, or do we just make decisions on the spot? Well, we do make decisions on the spot, but that's where behavioral science comes in and can influence and help us actually make better decisions. And, you know, we're going we're gonna to talk about this at length, but if there's anything that I would really love for people to take away from, from this, it starts with our unconscious is working constantly. Our unconscious is working constantly to inform and influence the way that we're making decisions. And the unconscious is being influenced by everything that's, that's around us, everything that we have believed, everything that we want to believe. It's really complicated stuff and fascinating stuff and wonderful stuff. But to think... to to think that it's just about, oh, I'm just going to make a decision. You present me with some options and I'm going to make a decision. It's not that simple. And, and, and we're not that simple creatures. We're pretty complex, which is pretty great. Oh, yeah. I think we are pretty complex, aren't we, Jeanette? What, what do you think? Do you, is it behavioral science a big part of it? Oh, I believe, and I don't. I, I don't think it's only in safety, isn't it? Like we do take decisions every minute, every second, sometimes subconsciously, but sometimes I think with reference to Daniel Kahneman's and Amor Tversky work about the thinking slow and thinking fast. Yeah. But I would like to talk to him about um, your statement. You mentioned in some of your works that we took decisions based on the context and environment we build around us. If you could talk about that a little bit, elaborate on those elements, context and environment. 
Happy to, Jeanette. I feel like I should have a t-shirt that says context matters because like that's, that's my theme song context matters. Um, because, uh, so, so uh, let's imagine a, a scenario. And this was, this was a, a study developed by Kahneman and Tversky. Um, so imagine, um, your, your doctor comes to you after you have uh, had some tests done and, and your doctor says, well, it, it, it appears that you have a pretty serious condition, but we have, an experimental treatment right now, and 80% of the people who have been through that treatment have lived. And you go, okay. And then the doctor says, well, would you like to, would you like to do that? Would you like to pursue that experimental treatment? Now, hold on to that thought. And now let's imagine framing it in a slightly different way where the physician says, you know, we got your test back and you have a pretty serious condition. We've got an experimental treatment that we'd like to, for you to consider. 20% of the people who have used it died, you know, instantly, instantly we, we fall back on, wow, that feels very, very different because the context of the way or the framing, it just changed from 80% of the people live to 20% of the people die. But of course it's actually the same data. We haven't actually, we're not actually getting two different data points or, or we're not getting a different data set. We're just getting opposite sides of the data family and and this is this is the big problem that the context in which that's presented now if i if i'm being told this is um you know 80% of the people live versus 20% of the people die deeply influences a powerful impact on the way that i'm going to choose my path forward and mm -hmm. and and the thing about this Jeanette, is that this contest context exists all the time we walk into a church a synagogue a mosque Instantly, instantly, we lower our voices. We don't have to be told, mm. make sure you speak quietly. It's, it happens instantly. We have a lot of social conditioning that our context does matter. We get dressed up when we go to certain events. We, we respond differently when we walk into a sports arena. All of those contexts completely unconsciously influence the way our, we behave, the way we think about things, the kinds of things that we're con we would consider doing, and we... And the great thing is that they work and the bad thing is they work. So we have to, so if we're going to influence our behavior in sort of correcting some of the potential troubles, uh, the miscalculations that we make, then we're, then we can use behavioral science to come in and, and uh, influence our better decision-making to pull us either out of context or to create a context where better decisions are made. Mal's background. Yeah, I think they're actually doing that now with uh, uh, with COVID, aren't they? Uh, mm. uh, because I mean, you, you talk about decision making, uh, uh, and you, you talk about uh, uh, the source of the information. Uh, you know, media hype up a lot of things, uh, and they dumb down a lot of other things. So you you, you get sometimes a, a big imbalance. And, and a great example, I think, uh, and this is only talking from. Uh, the point of view here in the UK, uh, the scientists are saying that um, one in 600,000 people uh, will may be affected uh, by uh, some form of vaccination. It doesn't have to be the COVID, it's, it's vaccination in general. Uh, and yet there are hundreds of thousands of people who are listening to the media saying, oh, there's blood clots, there's deaths, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that's been out of out of context, uh, and so again, this decision making 
um, element. Uh, it's quite it has quite a broad uh, uh, impact. And Jenna is right in saying it's not just safety. Uh, uh, this is right across the board for everything that we do. Uh, that that's a that's a great example, Mal. We are also coming to uh, to our our decisions and our behaviors. Uh, with a history of, of, of a couple things, right? A history of certain behaviors that we've done and a history of believing a certain thing about who we are and who we identify with. And so the tribes that we identify with, the, the groups of people that we identify with, we are deeply influenced by the context of our social environments. And when we, when we get a message from someone who we trust, we're much more likely to just believe it than we are from someone that we don't. I mean, I... I know that the earth is round. I believe that the earth is round. And why do I know that? My mother told me when I was six years old. Now, I didn't go out and measure it. You know, I didn't validate it. But since my mother told me, lots and lots of other scientific data has come forward to validate the fact that the earth is round. So I don't doubt it. But in a world like COVID, where we're just starting to understand it, when you have fractious uh, and very distinctly different perspectives, we can take little bits of science and we can we can use, uh, and of course the media has got an agenda, right? But but all those things influence us in ways that are building on how we've come to this very place in time and who our social circles are that are influencing the context in which we're hearing it. Mm. Just want to say that Gary Wong is uh, just said context matters. Um, Gary is uh, part of uh, Kinevin uh, framework. You probably know about them. Complexity with Dave Snowden. Uh, Gary Gary is an old sparring partner of ours, and he's going to come on a future <laughs> events. But he, he says, "Yeah, context does matter." It's so true. Uh, and, and what Mal says and Jeanette said. Can I ask you a question? I I watched a program today, uh, a Netflix program called Coded Bias, and it was about mm. algorithms. And uh, what I wanted to say to you was, <laughs> is we're getting these algorithms. This was a fascinating program, folks. If you get a chance, watch it. It's free of charge. It's on Netflix. And it talks about how algorithms are built, and it's built by people of a certain, let's just say, faction, okay? That faction is driving the determination and the decision-making for everything we do. Buying on Amazon, whatever it is, right? So when we talk Nudging. about better, yeah, when we talk about better, mm -hmm. yeah, when we talk about better decision-making with behavioral science, well, the behavioral science of it has been embedded by these small group of people within these huge algorithms that are now helping to drive decision-making for the people out there it's it's almost like the blind leading the blind have you come across that yourself tim <laughs> well um it, i'm not sure if it's quite as bad as the blind leading the blind but there's definitely an impact let's let, let's use the example of the the mit lab is studying how uh, right uh, uh, for uh, autonomous automobiles mm -hmm. and so there's this big moral question Right, they, it's sometimes referred to as the trolley study, where do we program the car, the autonomous vehicle, in a situation where if it goes straight, it's going to uh, kill a, um, uh, let's say, a, a mother and three children, but if it turns, it will kill a, an elderly man, and and there's a moral code in that, right? There's a moral aspect of decision making, and uh, and so this is something that. 
I think we humans have to think about and talk about. And this kind of gets into moral philosophy. It gets into, you know, are we going to be utilitarianism, uh, going to focus on utilitarianism or, or, or some kind of other moral code uh, to help this? And I think it's a big, I think these are big, complicated problems, but on a more basic level, somebody at Facebook built an algorithm that said, when you see this, we're going to show you this and this and this and this and this. So, yeah, and and it's clever uh, and it's also intentional. And it was one person or not, or a committee or a group or a whole company. I don't know. A group of people. Yeah. Yeah, that, That came to agree that this is the right model the right formula to use uh and so there is a moralism uh to to virtually everything uh everything in our world and especially when it comes to decision making Jeanette you're you're kind of shaking your head on this are you familiar with the MIT work the MIT lab yeah I was reading about that just because I'm doing this Yale studies right now just just aside of that and I uh, I absolutely agree because if you read uh, a nudge book the classic one of Richard Thaler remember he was telling about that he's afraid and he's scared of the nudge because if it's in the bad hands then it's going to be a negative nudge or fishing i think they call it mm. so i think it's a moral code moral issues uh, but isn't it like the decisions is something that sometimes we think we take those decisions but be we were nudged or uh, kind of directed Coke. towards those decisions <laughs> towards those decisions in a very smart way but from other side when we talk about safety um what is bad about nudging our employees to take the right decisions isn't right. it right so um, it, it it does seem sort of intuitive to say wouldn't it be appropriate to nudge someone to be safe to yeah. avoid catastrophic exactly. situations to avoid danger Isn't that the balance of uh, uh, leadership, uh, teaching, uh, uh, and making sure that uh, people do things what we consider to be correct? Uh, It it is. I think it's it's also uh, there's a certain um, aspect of of what the people like Richard Thaler and and, um, uh, Cass Sunstein talk about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they talk about libertarian uh, paternalism. So there's a paternalism that is influencing us in a a way that says, we think we know what is in your best interest. Mm -hmm. But the libertarianism comes in and says, and we want you to be able to decide what you think is best. And and so, so for instance, uh, savings. The, uh, Shlomo Bernardsi and Richard Thaler have done a lot of work on on savings plans. And and by changing us, uh, when you join a company, when when uh, employees join a company for the first time, they get the opportunity to engage in a company based savings plan. And and in the U.S., for years and years and years, those plans were opt in. So if I wanted to save, I had to check the box and say, yes, I want to get into the savings plan and then choose how much I want it to save. Where And then what what Thaler and Bernardsi found is that by changing it to an opt-out, opt-out, now our savings rates go from about 40% of all the employees to about 80% of all the employees. Wow. And, and so like on one level, I think we could agree that that's probably a good thing. Yet there are some arguments that say, it's still a moralism that's being, you know, imposed on people, even though they can opt out, you know, even though they can say, I don't, I don't want to save. 
um, and there are 20% of the people that do that, there's still a sense of moralism that says, we believe the paternalism that says, we think that it's in your best interest to save and to, and to save more. So I, I think that these are good discussions to have. I think the MIT lab with 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 cars is is important. And and Mal, I would just want to say one other thing about leadership. It's leadership that is ultimately going to bear, you know, going to carry the cross. They're going to have to really own the decisions that corporate policies, uh, you know, uh, bring to light. They're going to leadership is going to have to say the the leaders of organizations are going to have to agree. This is the sort of the code that we want to have for our company's policies, mm. uh, which they do now. But I think when we're getting into behavioral science, it might challenge it might challenge them. I, see, well, uh, I, I think ben- we've, already, we've already raised uh, uh, the point on, on a few of our previous uh, um, transmissions that we've had uh, with the uh, post-COVID. Uh, oh, yes. what's, the, what's the next step? So we talk about leadership. Uh, if we are uh, observing the workforce firsthand, uh, you, you can, I suppose, make a, a, a quicker decision. Uh, whereas now post-COVID, we are talking about remote working. Uh, we're talking about uh, uh, working in uh, lots and lots of different areas. So you don't have the, the same working environment. Uh, and so again, uh, all our decision-making now uh, from the behavioral science is will it inevitably change. That's a really good point, actually. I mean, in the UK, Tim, just to give you an idea, the uh, Pricewaterhouse and Cooper PwC uh, nationwide, one of the biggest building societies, have all decided to make homeworking a thing of the future. So more and yeah. more people are going to be working from home. I mean, where where are we going to say that, well, if we're going to make better decisions and we're going to use behavioral science, you're not going to get much of a chance to look at behavioral sciences if people aren't close to each other are they you're going to depend on <laughs> algorithms to tell you what their behaviors are which has been designed by seven or eight people so <laughs> well, what are we going to do i'm going to monitor jeanette's behavior today by using this algorithm to see what you're doing right well oh. it might be that jeanette's behavior changes because she's not going to the office and it might be in good ways. I mean, to some, to some degree, there's an argument that, that working from home is a little bit of a return to uh, pre-industrial revolution, you know, prior to the 1820s or 1830s when, when uh, factories pushed everyone out of, out of the home. Before that, the blacksmith had his forge you know, in the back of the house and the seamstress yeah, worked yeah. out of the, the front parlor yeah. and, and it was normal to work in the, in the home. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this is a, this presents an opportunity to push to something that uh, I, I don't mean to say that it's reactive or, or reactionary back to the 1820s, but it might, it might uh, pose some new norms on us, right? There might be the creation of new norms, and it's going to challenge the algorithm writers, you know, <laughs> the designers, right? It's going to yeah. challenge the designers of the algorithms because people might be looking at the world differently. Jeanette? Yeah, Tim, I would like to come back to the uh, topic we have today, better decisions. Yes. And uh, I was reading about you, so as a part of the pre-show preparations, and uh, um, the question I have, I'm really curious about what you talk about intrinsic motivation, 
social motivation. If you could elaborate more about how you see things, the, how to overcome biases in decisions, how to take better decisions, your thoughts, your advice. Well, I can answer that in three, three words probably. Or or not? <laughs> yeah. um, read my book. <laughs> read my article. Read my books. Read my articles. Read my right. Um, <laughs> gosh, Jeanette. It's, um, so well, let, 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 let me Tim, Tim, Jeanette. Jeanette does a research, by the way. So be. <laughs> I, I got it. I, I I got it. No, I'm really interested in that. How to take better decisions? Because everyone who's watching us today, they come mm -hmm. to understand. Mm -hmm. I think all of us want yeah. to take better decisions. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, the maybe the the most important thing to to do uh, if you're if you're thinking about I want to make better decisions is to start with decisions that are going to have meaningful impact in your life. You know, to to start with 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 big and segregate them from sort of day to day type decisions, unless you see something that is a day to day type decision that's that's getting in your way or that you're not happy with the way the way it's going. And, and so if we start with bigger decisions, uh, buying an automobile, buying a home, uh, renting an apartment, um, you know, uh, these, these sorts of things are pretty significant in, in our lives because of the fin financial impact and the inf impact on our lives. And, and then I think you want to focus on the, on the process. Uh, if or, or let, let let's say that you're let's let's take it out of out of home actually let's let's think about about work and and think about we're going to institute a new policy and we want to create this new policy and uh, I think that you have to start with the process that you're using to come up with that policy are you actually doing a good job of bringing in the stakeholders that are going to positively influence a balanced view of how that policy might impact the employees? And then, and then do one of the things that I think is one of the most important tools is a pre-mortem. So people have heard about the term post-mortem, where after the fact, ex post, you actually go back and look in the rearview mirror and see what went wrong and what went right. That's a post-mortem. A pre-mortem suggests that, that the policy designers could sit down and say, okay, let's try to anticipate what could go wrong with this. And we call where, it risk assessment team. <laughs> yes, yeah, it, it is. It is a risk assessment team. And, and yet... And and yet I, I want to I want to expand that because mm -hmm. I want I want to broaden the the conversation to all of the things that can go wrong. It's in the execution of the yeah. of the new policy. It's yeah. the communication tools that are going to be created, uh, the communication media that will be created to alert the employees as to what this new policy is. Really, just dive into the minutia so that it's. So that the, the the team that is designing starts to ask the questions about what could go wrong, what are the problems that we might encounter, and and if we do encounter those things, then let's figure it out. Let's let's pre-solve those problems. Let's try to anticipate, and we and we can't anticipate everything, but let's let's really work at trying to understand what those problems are, anticipate the problems, and develop plans around them so that when something actually does fail. We've already we've already thought about it, and this this is the the most important part about the the pre mortem, and and especially with these big decisions is context matters, right? We're in a this is is what uh, the behavioral scientists call a cool state. When I'm before 
before the experience, like before I go out in the evening to meet friends at a bar that I haven't done in a year and a half, and I'm excited to see them. But before I leave the house, I decide I'm going to have one beer and I'm going to leave at 10 o'clock. And then what happens when I'm there? Then I'm in a hot state. Right. Beers, I, beers. Yes, it's going to be. I, I'm I'm almost joining the Gallon Club. You know? <laughs> I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm right. going, and and it's midnight, and I haven't. I was like, no. So so the the pre mortem anticipates what my hot state might be, um, uh, you know, coming, and says, okay, so if if I get past my first beer. If I, if I finish my first beer and it's only nine o'clock, but I said I was going to leave at 10, what am I going to do? And come up with a plan, come up with a, with an alternative for how I'm going to deal with that. Yeah. Um, but, 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 but Tim, it, it, this, this is nothing new though, is it? In, in our industry, uh, uh, this is simply goal setting. Uh, yeah. And I know you're a great advocate of if you're setting goals, mm-hmm. keep them as few as possible. Because then they become achievable. It, it, it's when you when you start having 10, 15, 20 goals, uh, it, it, yeah. you lose sight of uh, uh, the end line, or, or rather the, the first phase uh, of the goals that you're trying to achieve, which will then enable you uh, uh, to further outside of the box uh, uh, and push a little bit further. Uh, and these are all. Again, I'll use an old uh, terminology. They're all smart goals, aren't yeah. they? Oh, yes. Uh, because yeah. we, we've, got to, we've got to make them specific. We have to make them measurable, definitely achievable. And if you stick to your one beer, you'll achieve it. And, but then, then you say, but is that realistic? Yeah. It will it. certainly be time-phased. Time if you manage to get out of the pub by 10 o'clock. <laughs> what if it's a context change? <laughs> yes. Well, and, 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 and something that I'm writing on right now that I haven't published yet is, uh, is uh, the idea of the North Star. And by the way, I am a big believer in goals. I've done a lot of research with Dan Ariely and with George Lowenstein yeah, yeah. On, on goals. And, and I'm a fervent believer in it. I also think that at this time when things are changing so much, goals become very it's hard to keep goals fluid, mm-hmm. right? We goals have to be specific, measurable, achievable, you know, they have to, Realistic in order to be, phase, yeah. yeah, they have to be. Uh, mm-hmm. And yet in a time when things are changing so much, it's very difficult to be specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time sensitive. So I, I I've been thinking about something called a North star, mm-hmm. which, which is not something, you know, the North star has been used by navigators for, thousands of years yeah. and no one is navigating to the North star They're right. We're not trying to get to the North star, but we are using the North star as a navigation tool to help us determine where we're at and if we're on the right yeah. path. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like in times like this, when things are very fluid, that having a North star defined in our lives, and that could be values. It could be things that we, we just believe in to have a North star to glance up at and check our navigation against, are we heading in the right direction? Because things are changing. The context are changing. The circumstances are changing. Uh, regulations are changing. COVID is changing everything. Do Are we still 
kind of tracking along a path that is consistent with our North Star. That's which is, which is direction. Yeah. It's, always, yeah. it's always direction. Uh, so, North yeah. Star is always in the, in the, the in northernmost the point of the sky, yeah. where, wherever we are. Yeah. Tim, you've, you've stoked up some chat here, so let's catch up on some of this chat that's going on. Oh. Uh, so we left it with Gary saying context matters. Now, Vince, Vince Butler is a very good friend of the show, um, and we always have the same conversation, which is a very, Hi, very important. Hi, Vince. A very important conversation uh, about the number of people that are killed across the world every year. I want to come back to this one because we're going to wrap it up in some way where I'll throw a curveball at you and hopefully it'll cover all of this because I've been watching the chats coming in. Uh, Tanya says, pre-mortems are so undervalued. I love this. Darren, a good friend of the show, says, is Tim aware of the PJ uh, DM construct, which is the professional judgment and decision-making construct within performance psychology. I guess you are. We'll yeah. cover all these, Tim, in just one second. Let me just cover some of the chats and clear the backlog. Uh, Tanya says, context is critical. Absolutely. And um, Vin says, we have laws that effectively need a pre-mortem. And Tanya picks up on the comment that Jeanette made about, about risk assessment. We need to value the consequence more than the probability. If the consequence is disastrous and unlivable, set the probability to one, know what you will, when, not, if happens. And Gary, they're flying in now, Tim. Hold on a second. It says, <laughs> Vince says, uh, Vince Butler, I assume you're referring to political laws rather than natural universal laws, etc." Tanya, values are more invariant, especially core values. Uh, okay, risk assessment. Okay, so now let me. North Star is a vector direction, Eddie. <laughs> oh my God! Well, you know that's, that's complexity for you. We'll, we'll leave that. Right. So look, Love that. Yeah, right. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> I've got I've got a curveball for you. Okay, I'm going to try and wrap this up in a certain way. So in our in our world of health and safety and risk management, so on as you as you very well know, when we start talking about decision making, we rely on this risk assessment process. We have different types of people, risk aware, you know, sorry, risk uh, appetite where they have very risk neutral, risk seeking, risk averse and so on. So when you talk about behaviors, their behaviors, a behavior of a risk averse person is totally different from a, you know, a, a risk seeking person. So that's where the leadership comes in. If a leader is very, you know, high flying, I want to take that risk. I want to go for it. You know how the decisions are going to be made there. But decision making for us in our line of work, when we do risk assessments, we are buddy duddy in a sense that we go through a process of saying, let's assess this, let's do a task-based risk assessment, let's build the performance indicators which are leading and lagging. We'll do the pre-mortems, post-mortems, and everything else, as you say. But is that is that what you're familiar with as well when you talk about the sort of decision making that you're you're talking about with behavioral sciences? Are we are we are we sort of wrapping it up in that framework? Yes, and I would also like to to narrow that a little bit because uh, people in general might be predominantly risk seeking or risk averse. However, we are also in this complexity. We could be risk seeking in one area of our life and risk averse in another area of our life. Yes, we and and a lot of that is context based. Right. So I have, I have a good friend who is a, a researcher and he is extremely risk averse in his career. Mm -hmm. He is extremely conservative about the way he approaches his job. And yet he uh, uh, he loves to go mountain climbing and he is extremely risk seeking when it comes to high altitude hikes and and uh, and, and mountain climbing. And those are two very, very different things. So and it and it largely depends on how much control he feels he has over the environment. 
Mm-hmm. So in in the world of academia, he actually feels like he has very little control, and mm-hmm. so he he re, he he um, he manages that by being very very uh, conservative and very risk averse. And yet, when he's out in the in the wilderness, he feels like I can I can take on specific things, not everything, but specific things by a, a careful assessment of what's going on and be more risk seeking in those situations. Well, I'd like to throw something back at you. I had a boss. Sorry, Jeanette, I just want to throw this back. Yes, um, I had a boss a long time ago uh, who said to me, you know what, you need to be a bit more risky, Sonny, right? You're not going to get anywhere in your life if you don't take these risks. We have to do that project. We have to do this. We have to do that. But boss, you know, I don't want to hurt people. I don't want to kill people. I don't want to lose my job. You know, outside of my zone where I'm having uh, impact on other people, you know, societal, whatever, I'm going to be not as risk seeking as I'm going to be riding my mountain bike across, you know, some stony ground or flying off these hills and so on. I've only got myself to blame there when I break a leg or break my neck. You've got to put it in context. I mean, that's why you said context matters. Mm-hmm. It is really important to take that on board. Yeah, I, I um, totally agree with that. I think when you are in a work environment, uh, uh, you have to be risk averse. Uh, otherwise, as you say, if anything happens, it's your neck that's on the line. Whereas yeah. if you're out in the wilderness, as Tim says, you know, you are in control of your own uh, uh, risk and you you know you, or you should know uh, your own skill set uh, and what you're able to do uh, and what is bordering on extreme and, and there are a lot of people out there who are extreme and yet they work in offices mm-hmm. well to, to get back to this sunny i think that there is a complexity around um again how we're how we perceive these situations how, and how we perceive them makes a difference in terms of what's going to influence our our decision making around them. So to kind of get back to Jeanette's question as well, um, what what what's what are the most important decision making things that we can do? Well, being aware of how we're making a decision, again, not just for every simple day to day issue, but the but being aware that we do have an unconscious processes, we have context that is influencing the way that we make our decisions, can at least start by by that information and hopefully that sensitivity when we're sitting at the table with the committee deciding on what the new policy is going to be mm-hmm. and discussing it, knowing that I have biases, knowing that I have pers- I'm influenced by all the things that have happened to me and not happened to you, you know, the, the, the fact that I might have been uh, in a specific accident at work 10 years ago that you didn't know anything about and you've never been hurt in an accident, that's going to influence me in a way that is not influencing you. And I think, I think we need some level of sensitivity to be aware that the intersection of bringing everybody to the table at the same time is going to bring different perspectives and it's very possible that the more diverse perspectives that we have, the better off the, our decision-making will be because I might say something that you hadn't considered and you might say something that I hadn't considered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um, a good point. Good point. Jeanette, do you want to, any thoughts? Oh, Mal as well. You know, go ahead. Go ahead, Mal. No, well, I, I was going to say, actually, because I, I mean, uh, I, I listened to a part of one of your podcasts uh, and you mentioned 
uh, incentives. Now, incentives are part of uh, better decision-making uh, mm. actions. Uh, uh, and you specifically say that non-monetary incentives are far, far better than those that are uh, uh, paid for in, in, in some form of reward. So what sort of incentives uh, uh, do you actually look at, Tim, that are uh, non-monetary? That that's a great question, Mal. Let let me first say that when it comes to uh, when it comes to human safety, when it comes to actual physical risk, there shouldn't be an incentive. It should be a mandate that we're going to stay safe. There shouldn't be. We'll reward you if if, if you tr if you're a little safer than you are now. You should be 100% safe. Um, and and I actually did some work with a with a large uh, oil, oil refinery uh, oil company in uh, Los Angeles a few years ago where uh, they were doing a turnaround where they they shut down the plant and you you guys know this right in 24 hours they yeah. clean it and do all these kinds of things and people die you know it's not it's not as if i might i might you know cut my wrist or 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 get a scratch on my arm but people can die from this and so the mandate was everyone lives everyone's going to stay healthy and there won't be any OSHA reportables uh, as a result of it. So, so that that was absolutely the mandate. But but using behavioral science, we help get people in the context to, to remind them to use the checklists, to rely on the procedures that are already in place, and then the social context of everybody's already doing it. You know, to have hourly reports coming up saying, "Guess what? This team just just um, reported that they've completed this one task flawlessly. How is your team doing?" Mm -hmm. You know, and and using this kind of social context as a way to make sure that that our decision making isn't going to always be perfect, but knowing that everybody, every other team is doing well, actually influences my behavior, mm -hmm. and so little things like that. So, so with yeah. that, it, I, I, yeah. I, I do want to get back to to the idea of incentives, hmm. uh, monetary or cash based or similar to cash. Um, can is is a less effective uh, engagement tool when it mm. comes to engaging our yeah. emotions yeah. and intrinsic motivation than the non-monetary or experiential kinds of kinds of rewards. Mm. Um, and you have to; these are very powerful tools. So you have to be very careful the way you the way you use them. You have to be thoughtful. Uh, yeah, Jeanette, go, go Jeanette, and I know Jeanette wants to chime in, so let Jeanette go, and then we've got we've got free flowing conversations here. So after Jeanette's finished, I'll bring them in. Okay, Jeanette, go ahead. Now, um, I'm really enjoying the conversation, Tim. Thank you so much. Um, just looking again back to the behavioral science, you know, my pain and sadness sometimes that behavioral science has been utilized and used in so many areas like economics, politics, like Barack Obama's political <laughs> campaign. They know that it's been done by the uh, behavioralist uh, uh, healthcare. Uh, but I believe we still do not talk a lot about behavioral science in safety. Uh, unfortunately, that's my feeling, personal feeling. Yes, we do have behavioral-based safety system, but always the major 
mistake is that we talk about observations and tools and we don't talk about the behavioral science mm. for example nudging uh, our workers to take the right decisions and it's not only when we do risk assessment or post incident but on daily basis when we do operate our machines our cranes when we take those uh, decisions on the daily basis and uh, talking about behavioral safety i would love team that you uh, work more and more with safety professionals in complexity nudging to the right directions taking those decisions but my question that was a summary <laughs> oh that's great uh, fantastic yeah really really would love to see behavioral science more and more in health and safety especially if it comes to mental health right now like social uh, distancing like we're talking about uh, gratitude talking about uh, um, depression mm -hmm. those type of things where we need to incorporate behavioral science science i'm really a big fan of behavioral science my question team about biases <laughs> um, uh, because you, uh, because we talk about the context, but within those contexts, we can also develop, even develop, uh, new biases, and people might influence our decisions with those biases. For example, social reference biases. So. Um, I don't know, um, he's richer, he's more successful, so she, she's a model, I need to reference to her, or she's more, I don't know, more successful, more beautiful. So social reference biases, impact biases, focus biases, how to, how to get away from those biases, because we people try tend to get back to status quo. <laughs> to the comfort zone and sometimes decisions that require us to get out of the comfort zone so team any advice how to tackle biases well let's start with biases have evolved in our dna for good reasons right it, it, there's uh, the world is just so much more complex and more nuanced today than our than when our DNA was basically set 40 or 50,000 years ago. So when we heard, um, for instance, uh, 40 or 50,000 years ago, if, if we happen to observe um, a food source and we're not really sure if that was going to be safe, but then we saw some other primates or other humans um, eating that food source, then, then we would go, oh, you know what? That's, that's probably a good thing. That, that's probably going to be safe for me then as well. Mm -hmm. And so we had this social uh, reinforcement built into our DNA from 40,000 years ago that says, if other people are doing it, it's probably going to be good for me. Mm -hmm. Now, today, the world is so much more complex because we're not just talking about where to sleep, where to eat, you know, is, is it safe to be in this, you know, to, to live in this village? Now we're talking about what's a good thing to do on Facebook? What is this a good product to buy? And so now we're using social reinforcement for all kinds of things. And, and so it's not that the bias of, of social reinforcement is bad. It's just that it can be misused mm -hmm. when, when we see a, a report that says 50,000 other people believe this is the product to buy. Mm -hmm. You go, well, that's, that's a pretty big number. Mm -hmm. But if, if we saw 500 million people have already decided this, we're like, well, done deal. Every pretty much, you know, a huge amount of the population. So, so you're saying made. change the reference point. Change, we've changed the reference point. And, and mm -hmm. as a decision maker, I have to be willing to 
be aware that I'm going to be influenced by my social surroundings and be willing to say, wait a minute, is this actually really better for me in my context, in the world that I live in? It is all this social pressure that I see, is this really actually going to help me or is it not? Mm-hmm. And, and and so it's not, there isn't so much just about overcoming biases in general, but overcoming biases in particular situations where we're going to make decisions and what are the influences on us mm-hmm. that are going, that are going to, so uh, Janet, I, I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to not answer this fantastic question that no, you've got. No, it's no, like, I, think, it's, I, think it's a, I think it's a tough question to answer. Um, can I yeah. just pull in some of the chats along the same same lines, actually? So uh, I just want to catch up. You know, Tim, you, you've stirred up some some chats here. So uh, uh, we've got Tanya saying risk perception is hugely important. Thank you, Tanya. We can engage in micro experimentation. Tanya, if you're interested, 22nd of April is our networking event with Gary Wong on Kinevin, uh, the basics to uh, intermediate. Well, we are going to talk about fail to safe experiments and micro experimentation uh that was a little plug by the way uh midney says as safety professionals sometime we will be in a situation to take risk and here where a lot will play a big role in our world that's literally as low as reasonable practice as low as reasonably practicable but in fact, companies are tending more to go to alara which is as low as reasonably acceptable a big subject on its own, Tim. Uh, we could probably yeah. do a subject on that. Midney also says, I think even a LARP, oh, I think even a LARP needs to have some restrictions, let's say, or boundary. Absolutely, because people go bonkers on uh, a LARP, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> Vince, decide to smoke, decide to take decreation. Okay, decide to have a drink. <laughs> yeah, okay. So these are all <laughs> those things we talked about, yeah. of, you know, what you take and control yourself. Tanya says, I'm going very fast through these, Tim. Please uh, forgive me. And, and Mal and Janet. So Tanya says, extrinsic versus intrinsic incentives very important yeah that's the value isn't it yeah go ahead go ahead you you know tanya brought up something earlier she was talking about probability versus consequences yeah and um and i think that when it comes to decision making and this is this is uh maybe the one of the best decision making hacks that you can think about is really focus on process and and jeanette you you brought up the idea that outcomes are important the consequences are important you know a, a a particular uh we can certainly say that something probably wasn't safe if someone was injured. However, just because someone wasn't injured doesn't necessarily mean it was safe. And so, so I'd like to, I'd like to challenge people to think about what is the process that you're using for your decision-making again, do you have the right people at the table? Do you have um, a a diverse stakeholder group that is informing what are all the potential outcomes, are you doing a, a, a pre-mortem and really thinking yeah. through things in such a way that that will actually make the decision process better? Yeah. To, they, know, they're not, good. yeah. Sorry, Tim. They're good points. And uh, let's just caveat that by saying that in, in our world, we do tend to have these very rigorously and systematically in place where you do all these risk assessments before have to. It's, it's a part of the thing called the management of change. But can I just cover some more of these others that are coming in. So as I said, you have sparked some interest here. So it would be be, uh, not a good thing to not cover some of these. Um, So uh, Tanya says, make it easy to do the right thing. Ibru, great to see you on the show. I think your first time on the show, I think you're in Turkey. So I'll say it's tonight in Tashikula. And and, and Ibru said, enable safe behavior. Uh, Tanya says, support people in their work. Absolutely. Uh, Where are we? We We are. Cool. We've got a lot here. And Jeanette will know Katarzyna. I think Jeanette absolutely agree. Vince is talking about the nudge theory. 
BBS gets maybe 7% of the global workforce. Uh, what about 97%? Uh, change the culture from I have to do to I want to do. Yes, well, that's that's uh, personal, taking it personally, isn't it? Um, that belonging it's cue again that we're talking about. That's, yeah. that's mindset. Mindset, that's it, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Darren says there's a specialist Irish course of behavior science and safety. Yeah, I'll send you a link to that. My point was a bit different. It's like yeah. there are some courses, but we're still lacking in implementing yeah, proper behavioral science in safety. Yeah. Um, Maybe I we should cover that in a future course. Yeah, that's a good mm -hmm. one. Gary says, buy for the mental shortcuts. We need to make fast, simple decisions in a complex world. Um, I'm trying to make Gary sort of swing around from complexity to simple people dimwits like me see and i'm i'm slowly winning but we'll see how that goes uh, uh Minnie says darren sutton send it to me you don't mind please absolutely go for it tanya we need to look at normal seemingly banal work to appreciate the complexity <sighs> right so we've caught up some of the chat there um that was tough, <laughs> yeah you know uh two other things tanya also talked about um making it easy to do the right thing you know yes. uh, we we talk about friction in yes. in the behavioral science world reduce friction where you where you want people to to do things right increase friction where you want people to slow down right yes. for so for those instantaneous quick decisions where it's just like let's get someone to do the right thing reduce friction but where you want someone to slow down uh then increase friction because it's it's a good thing, you know. I I I, I know there's um, great work done on on having uh, having entire factories can have a shutdown button, and when one person shut, hits that shutdown button, everything everything can shut down, and nothing goes live again until that that area has been cleared. And uh, you know, it's I, I get the the work challenges that go along with that, but uh, but there are some really good things. But increasing friction for everyone to think about it. Um, I also uh, just forgive me for being a a, a bit um, semantic here. Uh, about uh, Gary mentioned that biases are are, are sort of the the shortcuts of decision making. Those are actually heuristics. Yeah. So I, I would actually say that a bias is actually a um, is is influencing our decision making on an unconscious level. It's a it's a blind spot. A bias is like a blind spot that we're not aware of, and so it's very difficult to actually become aware of our own biases because they're blind spots. But we can look to cues around us. I get cues from my wife about what my biases are all the time. So I get all the time. <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm paying attention, I will know what my biases are from how she responds to me, and I'll go, Ah, oh, I had a bias there. I was totally. I was totally unconscious of that. Well, you know, um, if you're free on the 22nd, stop by on that uh, networking event. That's not a live event. That's actually where we have a hundred seat uh, oh. maximum where we're talking about uh, this one with Kinevin. And I think you'll find that highly engaging because Gary is really into biases and, and the whole the whole enchilada. Awesome. Um, Ebru's come back saying leadership is highly important BBS for many reasons. Okay. Now, look, we've got, we got about eight minutes left before we crank off on the show. But can I can I sort of ask something? And folks, please keep coming, uh, keep uh, feeding us with the questions and thoughts. With the four of us in, in the experience that we've got, can I go around and say, if we're talking about better decision making with behavioral science, what would be one thing if we put it, if we if we sort of hinge it to risk and safety management, what is the one thing that we could share with the audience that would maybe help them with a better decision making with behavioral science? Let's start with you, Tim, and then we'll go reversing that way. Tim? 
I think maybe the most important thing that comes to my mind is starting with um, an ethnographic review of what people are doing currently. Understand what the current conditions are and what those current conditions are producing in order to develop an appropriate intervention. So that's that's like bringing in diversity and inclusion, I guess, isn't it? Uh, I, it's it's more of an anthropological, right? You know, review of this is what's happening. It's it's sure. like putting the microscope on the workplace for this for the behaviors that are that are actually happening that are contributing to a specific situation. Yeah, I can, so, I can yeah I can see Gary sat there going, "Good one." So you will definitely have won Gary over with that, and you're going to have to be <laughs> on that networking. He loves the anthropological and all the other connections there. Thanks, Tim. Um, now, of course, this doesn't mean, you know, please chime in. Feel free to freestyle on this. So, Mal, what's your thoughts? Well, I, I certainly like uh, uh, the, the, the pre-mortem angle, uh, which is always looking uh, in front of you and not in the rearview mirror. Uh, because, again, you know, if, if we use the old uh, PDCA, plan, mm -hmm, do, mm -hmm. act, uh, we, we can actually keep moving forward with that. Uh, and, and, again, the old adage, what gets measured gets managed. Yes. It's, I, I, for me, it, it, it's, it's almost as simple as that. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Mal. So I told you, didn't I? You'd make a friend with Gary there. Spot on, Tim. Let's all become <laughs> ethnographers. You know, uh, you, know you, you and Gary should go off to a, for a beer or sometime in the future when all this COVID stuff's over. Um, uh, Jeanette. Your thoughts. Yeah, what one one beer oh. only till ten o'clock at night. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Let's um, work together, Mal. Exchange. <laughs> you know your thoughts. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank you, Tim, uh, for coming and answering our difficult questions, sometimes messy questions. Um, I would like to say that we need more and more behavioral science and safety. Uh, that's my conclusion. So, so thanks to you, thanks to Darren Sutton, people who are doing great job. And I'm not talking about only UK states. I'm talking about again inclusion and uh, diversity about Poland, Ukraine, Romania, Bulgaria, where unfortunately behavioral science is just a beginner of the journey. We're still sometimes struggling with physical safety, with uh, mm -hmm. uh, with the procedural safety. I would like to have more and more more uh, Darren Sutton's uh, uh, training across the world. Um, if it comes to behavioral science, first of all, thank you, team. I'm taking context and uh, creating an environment, work environment at the workplace, so our people take the right decisions. Thank Very you. Good. Very good. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't have anything to share. I'll just stitch it together. I mean, I've got lots of things I can say, but I won't. Okay. Uh, my, my thanks to you, Tim, for coming on the show and sharing such valuable time and your knowledge. Really appreciate that. Um, in terms of what I've learned from this, doing these shows, is that I'm, I'm a hardcore engineer and I've, I've, I've adjusted, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, enlightened. Uh, I've always talked about the safety continuum going from design, engineering, procedures, and people. We spend a lot of time in the people area now, which we rightly should do, talking about behavior and so on. Uh, I always say, well, look, I'm an expert on human being. I've been one for over 50 years, right? That's that's what I say. But in terms of comments, we've got uh, Ebru saying uh, the leader should be a good example set to all. Uh, spot on, Tim, that's fine. Now, I'm going to cover these. 
See, Tanya, please come on that. Again, a little plug, come on the networking <laughs> event. You'll love the words on there. I have to get my dictionary out every time uh, uh, Gary's uh, yeah. starting to talk about stuff. Hebrew uh, says, fantastic, what gets measured is managed. Now, this is a good one because Darren and I had a bit of a ping pong on Saturday because I put out a post on key performance indicators and he talks about Goodhart's Law. And Goodhart's Law is about measuring and after a while it just goes in the background and becomes like wallpaper. And it's a very good point, you know. Uh, if we talk about what gets measured gets managed, my only comment on that is make it meaningful, keep it real, keep it pragmatic, and don't let it become wallpaper on the wall. That's all I've got to say. Right? Uh, other than that, you know, Tim, it's been a fascinating 57 minutes. It's actually flown past and uh, loved loved your company all, all the way. Do you want to have any closing thoughts, Tim, as our special guest? Any final thoughts? No, Midney said something about changing culture, and I just want to reiterate the words of Peter Drucker, where he said, "Culture eats strategy for breakfast." Yeah, yeah. Let's let's keep that in mind that no matter where we're coming from, the context of the culture is extraordinarily powerful. And if whatever you think you're going to measure, it's going to be influenced by culture. Yeah, and that is why I'm a big I'm a big seller of culture. You know, diversity, yeah. inclusion, culture. We really have to start getting that narrowed down. Um, maybe not with algorithms, though. Uh, all right. <laughs> I've been a human for a long time. The classic response to human factors not being appreciated as a helpful science. Well, I'm sorry, Tanya, but you know, uh, I, I do feel that sometimes uh, we, we do have to um, say that as a human being, I've gone through some things as well, just like everybody else. We all have views. We all have thoughts and what we'd like to share. But other than that, uh, Mal, Jeanette, Tim, thank you so much for all Thank your you. time and efforts. And uh, I'll catch up with you at the end of the show when I play the outro out and uh, speak to you in a short while. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for stopping by and watching that live event. If you want to be notified of future live events, head over to our website. There's a form on there. Hit the subscribe button and I'll update you whenever live events come up. I promise you, no spam. And finally, we do have a YouTube channel. It's just simply Red Risks. Please subscribe and help us. Let's connect, share and learn. Thanks. Catch you on the next live event.